absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Course Squash podcast. On today's show, we welcome newly appointed Director of Athlete Development for Squash Canada, and he's the previous Executive Director of Squash for Ontario and the co-founder of the National Squash Academy. Jamie Nichols, how you doing, man? Thanks for coming on. Top shelf, guys. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I just wanted to add to Jamie's laundry list of, uh, you know, power in the Squash Ontario and Squash Canada uh, coaching and now administrative scene, but... uh, I, uh, he was one of my, one of my first, uh, coaching role models. I had to get him coffee twice a day, every day during camp. And I was the apprentice. So I've, I've had to carry on that tradition, making some of the younger coaches get me coffee and pass the torch. Um, and then he, uh, was Nick Sackfee's, uh, quasi landlord. Nick lived in his basement when he was first coming up on the pro tour and then worked side by side uh, as my sister's boss at Squash Ontario for a few years, leading up yeah. to uh, leading up to this year. So, and then yeah, I think had a couple sleepovers at the Sackfee house. He reciprocated whenever we needed. So, uh, big uh, big squash family here. Big squash family uh, guest. Love it. It's a lot of love Thanks, there, fellas. You should cut each other's hands and shake it. <laughs> Cement that bond. <laughs> yeah, it's probably more like a brotherly love. I don't know if it's, it's you know, a lot of love, but been a lot of years together. Also seems like Jamie's basement maybe worked out better for your brother than the House of Broken Dreams that you mentioned in the last episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. He's still going. The House of Broken Dreams, uh, they didn't last as long. I heard that reference. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I dropped many... Many kids off at that house after practice. <laughs> Waved to them as they walked in. Dreams crushed. <laughs> now you just need to stick them in your own basement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it was much better, but uh, at least they had their own house. Thought that was cool. So, Jamie, um, you're, as the newly appointed director of athlete development for Squash Canada, I'm sure you have visions and goals and stuff. Do you want to give us a good some history of Squash Canada? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I thought I'd prepare a little, uh, yeah, a little bit of a brief history. You have to understand the history if you want to know where you're going to go in the future. So, um, you know, like uh, I was thinking about Arthur and, and Stu, like Scotland and Ireland, tons of great history in Canada. We've got great people up here, great community, great clubs, great pros. Um, and so I'm excited about the job just because of, you know, what we've been able to do. Always sort of punched above our weight a little bit, I think terms of uh, performance on the world scene and that's my goal is to get us back to that level so um chris you jump in anytime because you're a big part of squash canada's history at least your family is anyway but uh yeah so i I just um back when i was growing up i grew up in the 90s which is sort of the golden era in canada and i think it really started in uh sort of the 80s when we had this massive influx of internationals that for whatever reason just sort of ended up coming to canada on tour and staying here and, and setting up shop, which was, you know, huge for the sport. So we had people like <clears throat> Heather Wallace stayed here. We had Mike Way. Uh, we had Sharif Khan. Um, you know, John Flurry is an Irishman and Willie Hosey. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Hickox was here. So we had all these just amazing internationals that for whatever reason just decided they wanted to call Canada home. So um, that helped sort of pave the way for the next, the next group, which is, is famous, you know, the Jonathan Power Graham riding. Shahir Raza group, 
So in the early 90s, when I was growing up, Jonathan's about five years older than me, but you had this amazing dynamic, like league nights, you know, local tournaments, all these top, top international guys that sort of on the downswing of their career, doing battle with, with the young guys coming up. The clubs were packed, like, uh, you know, it, there was clubs in every city that had, you know, the bar in the middle and the, and the courts all around. The level was really good. So that was a real boom period for us. Um, and a lot of those people are still around, which is cool. Um, so we have a real sort of uh, tradition of international sort of running the show here, which, is, which has been, been great. <clears throat> so then we, we know what happened in the late 90s. Jonathan came through, world champion, uh, obviously huge for the sport. He, um, Mike Way, um, had set up a national training center in Toronto. Um, and I actually worked as a towel boy there when I was like 13. And so I get to watch these guys uh, training, power, riding. Paul Price was there for a while. Um, we had a bunch of girls. And it was just a, just a great period in time where you had, you know, everything was sort of came together, lightning in a bottle. Um, and it's just a, a great environment. Jonathan went on to do his thing. Actually, you know, was pretty, pretty famous in, in Canada. He was on TV quite a bit, you know, his personality. Um, and he really drove the sport. And then we had this great glass court event, Canadian Open, um, Pace Credit um, Canadian Open. And it was downtown Toronto in this big office tower. And uh, like, it, it was magical. We, you know, sort of like a TOC vibe. Everybody was there. Um, and so all the young kids would get to experience this. And it's just, you guys know what it's like when you're a kid and you're seeing seeing this happen. So that was really sort of the golden era. Um, and uh, that's obviously where we want to get back to. But I think you guys were talking on the last pod about U.S. College Squash. So, you know, sort of late 2000s, Chris and his his group, that was the thing to do. And because we were Canadians, we were the first ones to kind of get poached. So it became sort of the exception. Um, you know, one, one out of four kids on your national junior team would go down to the U.S. And by the time Chris was done, it was all of them. Um, and so that was, you know, really a, a positive thing, you know, but we didn't capitalize on it. We weren't ready for it. And uh, it's affected our development negatively, which is, you know, one of the things we need to tap into. Um, Chris, you want to jump in or? Yeah, I think my crew was uh, about split with, you know, Keith Pritchard, Andrew McDougall, Dave Glass opting to, to not go the U.S. college route. And then, uh, Colin West, myself, a year later, Dave Letourneau, a year later, I think Kelly Shannon. So, you know, we were about three for six of, of the top six guys, um, in kind of my group. And then as you're saying, I think then the floodgates kind of definitely kind of opened and it didn't seem like a lot more. Um, and yeah, I was just, you know, I don't think we, I chatted about this on the last episode, but yeah, definitely didn't feel like I stayed super connected with squash Canada in terms of, uh, I, I guess I got, you know, I was connected through the sport through white Oaks holding the national championships one year. So I played the adult national championships, but, um, had to, had to leave school the weekend before exams started. So it's just kind of like lucky. I didn't care as much about school, I guess, as I did about squash, um, which is the reason why I played. And then, I think I came down to the NSA a couple of years later um, on the same weekend and played and um, got knocked out. And I think I turned into the bartender actually upstairs there in the VIP area. So that was a good, one of my, one of my good jobs. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, definitely, definitely that exodus. And I I think, you know, to your point, 
Um, we've had this conversation a couple of times now, just trying to figure out a way to keep these kids in the system. And that was a big point Amanda Sobey made about um, using their national training center to bring, bring those younger people in with the, the top pros and teach them the ropes. Yeah, they kind of need that connection. If, if you don't, you're like, what do I do when you get to the end of that college career? If there's nothing to pull you, to keep you involved in squish, you're probably more likely to go and do something else, travel a different route. But when if it's if there's something there, like a pathway in front of you that says, okay, you join the tour, here's a few tournaments in and around the area that you live or not far off or at a national centre, this will help you get exposed and to see some of the great players in the world in the top 100 or top 200, whatever, put yourself up against them in an environment that where there's not eight people cheering for you and, and a home crowd cheering for you in a college environment. And, and if you like it and you revel in it, on your bike, on your go, son. And if you don't, no worries. At least you gave it a go and you had an opportunity to test that environment, to test the waters a wee bit. Because other, other than that, I guess it's either you got to figure it out for yourself. And I mean, you have to really want it if you're going to do, do that, I think. Yeah, and so that, I mean, that's, uh, that's all perfectly said. Like, that's why we created the National Squash Academy in 2010. So we saw that gap and we saw that there was just no pathway these guys and so jonathan myself and gary Waite, you know this was it was it was a dream to, to build this center and we, we did it um but we sort of did it we we did have some good support from the federation from squash canada but it was anecdotally like we had to build it first it was all of our own money investors money and so you know it was totally underfunded it was you you were there arthur chris you spent a lot of time there i mean it was it wasn't a polished private club by any stretch it was an old airplane hangar so the vision was great, just a bit underfunded. And, you know, from the get-go, we didn't have the tools we needed to really make a, a run of it. Um, and so, but that, that's what we were trying to accomplish was a place where, you know, the college players could come back in the summer. They could get, they could get their touch points. They could get their exposure. The juniors were there, you know, training, and then the pros would come on after them. We had all sorts of international people. I mean, Diego was there but when he was 14. We had, you know, all sorts of people popping in. So, you know, one story I was just remembering is one day I came in, <clears throat> I came into the club at like 1 p.m. I was totally dead. I was the only person in the club. I look over at the glass court and there's Rami, Jonathan, and Alistair Walker just playing threes. And so, because they were in town for a tournament. And so, like, that's what you want, right? You just want that sort of melting pot of like everyone's in the same spot. So, you know, that's what we were trying to accomplish. And I think I learned a lot of lessons with that. Um, but that, that's where we need to go for sure. And so, so with that experience now, you know, you're in Toronto, you're building regional hubs. It, it looks like you said, but uh, you know, how are you going to find, how are you going to use the kind of the positives from that and now bring it into what you're trying to do in the future here with squash Canada? I think one thing I wanted to go back to is, is in terms of the misses. So we missed with your group, Chris, just in engagement and just like recognizing that this was happening and embracing it as opposed to, you know, okay, you're going to college, you're done, you know, have a good, you know, life on wall street or whatever. Um, But we also didn't tap into like the actual school scene, like they did in the U S. So like that was another failing is, is trying to get, you know, the prep schools and the universities to understand a, what big business it is, but B what a big driver to sport it can be. So, you know, we have a lot of prep schools up here. It's very similar to, to the U.S. and our universities, you'd be amazed. There's squash courts in, all, in every university. 
but we didn't really tap into that as a, as a pathway or as a vehicle. So we're going to do that a little bit. And I think you're going to see the next builds are going to be in those institutions. So those are the two big misses, I think. Um, you know, we didn't tap into the infrastructure, uh, both from a player standpoint and facility standpoint. So, you know, th those are those are two of the big long-term goals. But yeah, as Chris said, um, you've got great scenes in Vancouver. Vancouver is really good right now. There's going to be a lot of good juniors coming out of Vancouver soon. A lot of good coaches out there. So Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, and Toronto. Um, instead of trying to set up one national training center where we try and get everybody to come there, we're going to start to branch out a little bit and we're going to have uh, regional centers where the juniors can, you know, without having to travel. We've got great coaches there, great clubs there. But that's the concept is we have these four hubs uh, and then those hubs sort of branch out <clears throat> to more regional centers after that. And, um, and we go from there. Do you have a similar setup to that in Scotland, Stuart, where you had a bunch you, smaller, you could bring in a lot of people over weekends and stuff, right? But how, uh, how'd your like regional stuff work? Yeah, there was, there's actually quite a lot of similarities, even, even going all the way back to Jamie talking about the sort of golden generation in the late nineties or early two thousands. We had obviously Peter Nicol at the same time as Jonathan. And then we also had Martin Heath and John White. So probably our strongest group of players was, almost exactly the same time as Canada's strongest group of players. And then I think around 2003, we sort of set up a national training centre, uh, one of the universities in Edinburgh. Um, and we had a national coach for the first time and he sort of got a really strong programme up and running. Um, I guess the biggest difference is that we were trying to coordinate all our players in a central location. So we were, when kids were leaving high school, we were trying to encourage them to come and study in Edinburgh there's three universities in Edinburgh, so it didn't really matter. It's a small enough city that you can study at any of the three of them and still uh, get to the one university, Heriot Watt, where the National Training Centre was. So uh, we weren't losing our players to other countries or having to deal with such huge distances where like, we, we could bring juniors together from around the country for a weekend squad or a one-day squad, and they probably only had a maximum of like three hours travel. Um, from the furthest away parts of the country. So I, I guess that's a big difference with you guys. But we then, when I started working as the assistant national coach, I sort of set up a, a junior programme where we had weekly regional squads um, in Scotland. It's a fairly small country, but it's basically six regions. Um, and we would have six regional coaches that would run sort of one and a half hour squad sessions once a week just to bring the, the best players. So they'd have monthly national squads where they'd all come to Edinburgh for a day and then they'd have weekly regional squads where they'd have 90-minute session with the regional coach. Um, and it was all coordinated through mostly myself. Like I would I would do the sort of lesson plans and share that with the coaches and then they could adapt it to the level of players they were working with. But it was all built around basically they'd come and ha they'd have a session at the national the national squads on the weekend and then they'd spend the next sort of four weeks just repeating that session so that they got a lot of repetition and got to practice those concepts as opposed to just a one-off session and then a month later they come back and they've completely forgotten everything they did forgotten how it works so I think there's there's things that Squash Canada could learn from but I also understand that much bigger country much bigger um, geographically in terms of bringing players together uh, it probably needs to be more city-based, I would imagine. 
for you guys. Um, but I, th I think the biggest thing that's probably lacking is creating that pathway and vision, but not just internally am among Squash Canada, but making the players aware of that vision and seeing themselves on that pathway, understanding that when they go to, to college at 18 in the US, that you guys still want to keep them engaged and um, still want to have them back. If, let, just letting simple things like letting them know, hey, if you're ever back for for a weekend or for a week, let us know and we'll, we'll see if we can get a session organised for, for you. Just so that they, they retain that connection to Squash Canada and they also feel that there's, there's a real engagement where Squash Canada cares about what they're doing day to day. Even maybe making contact and staying in regular communication with their college coaches when they go away so that Again, you guys are familiar with what they're working on and you can even feed into that if you if you have them over the summer and just, hey, we, we had a great period of time over the summer with such and such. We did a little bit of work on this. Uh, we'd love to get your thoughts on it. I think that's a really good way for, to make the players feel like you guys care and also to let them see that you're not just abandoning them for four years and hoping that they show up on your doorstep when they graduate. Yeah, I mean, I love it, sir. It's exa exactly, um, you know, our vision with that group. And it's amazing. You call them up. I talked to George Graham this morning. I talked to James all the time. I, I had the benefit of coaching a lot of them personally, but they want they want to be a part of it, right? So it's, it's not like you're pulling teeth. It's just a matter of picking up the phone and saying, hey, man, if you're in the city, come by. Let's have a meeting. Let's, get, let's catch up. And it, it's been a lot easier than I thought. And, and you're right. That's all it is. It's just that connection point and, you know, keeping in touch and, and figuring out how you can work together. One of, you're rolling this out tomorrow, right, Jamie? A, a national, I, I, I'm, I'm scheduled to uh, be, on the, be on the call, the national testing program that you're going to roll out? Oh, we were going to have you present actually on the fitness <laughs> testing, but uh, after marriage, maybe I, I went a different route. But <laughs> yeah, that's part Pre of it. Presenter or demo? Yeah, I was going to say, Both, yeah. I'm not doing the VO2 max or the beat test, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, but that's a small part of it. I mean, that's something uh, we have, uh, I've been studying, you know, studying a lot of models, but um, Canada is an amazing sports country. So you know, one, one um, organization I love is Tennis Canada. So Tennis Canada, like 20 years ago, was just the worst country in the world, you know, no players, nothing happening. And now what they've done the last 20 years is, you know, they've, they've got huge, huge annual tournament. They've got all sorts of players. Um, and so I look at what they do a lot. Um, and to Stuart's point, like we do have geography that's an issue, but you can't make an excuse for your geography. you got to deal with it. And other, other sports are dealing with it. So that's just a small part. But, yeah, we have a national testing um, and, and uh, sort of physical and technical testing program. We're going to get all the centers, like all the four centers, to complete it together make it a little bit of a competition, but just sort of start to link things uh, with tools like that. And then the nice thing about that, like just Stuart's point about sending kids home and having them work on things for four weeks and staying connected. Uh, I, I remember going to, you know, a squash Canada squad camp and we'd have the heavy duty, you know, VO two max test where they're pr pricking your pricking your finger and taking your blood every whatever, two minutes. And it's like, I was like 15 and there was never a follow-up to it. They send you home with like a weird sheet of paper <laughs> that says, you know, you need to do more cardio. And it's like, you know, they're so having programs where you're 
not just testing once a year so you can say you checked a box, but following up and, um, you know, not for testing and for anything else, for skill development in general. So it's good to see. Uh, yeah, it's good to see. And I'm looking forward to being on that call. We used to do that test once a year uh, with, you know, as, as a carded athlete, if you like. So the first time I did it, I was 18 and the guy sent me an email the night before have your normal breakfast, plenty of carbs, bowl of cornflakes or whatever. And I was like, fine. I mean, it goes to show how, how much, how much I knew or how much I was in, what kind of information I was getting, even with a basic thing like nutrition. Anyways, turn up, probably painted pretty well. You get a harness, there's a bungee rope up to the thing. We're on the treadmill. It starts off at 10 kilometers an hour, which I don't know what that is in miles an hour. And then every three minutes it goes up one and then yeah, prick the finger. You have that mask over your face to count your VO2. And I can't remember what it was, but I think it was something like 20 miles, 20 kilometers an hour. And I'm, I'm heaving pretty heavy. And I was like, got to finish this level. Like whatever I do, finish this level. And your man's like roaring and shouting at me. <laughs> and then, so he pricks my finger when I finished the next level. And whatever happened, I was struggling. I was trying to keep my balance as I was holding my hand out. I threw up like the mask is there. So, <laughs> so I'm projectile vomit and it was coming back in my mouth. And I, whatever happened, and I can't really remember, but I passed out. And you know, I'm dangling off the thing, and the treadmill is like booming. <laughs> and then, like, and the next thing I know, like, I'm lying on the ground, and your man's like, put a hot, uh, cold towel on my head. He's like, Arthur, Arthur. He's like, clicking his fingers, <laughs> throwing a bit of water on me. And I'm like, the hell just happened? <laughs> Why do I have cornflakes all over my mouth? <laughs> At least you know you got your max out of yourself. That's oh, true, Max man. testing. That's, that that's true, true. Max. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I always remember some guy puking into the mask for sure. Like <laughs> one out of 10 guys is going to go into the mask. <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I was, I was half the man. I mean, I was 18. So I was a boy. I was half the boy. I was when I left that place that day, but it was, uh, but it was ridiculous. Like that was it. It was once a year. There was no follow up. And like, like I said, like I assumed after then, like that he was my resource for fitness training and for, for nutrition. So I, I was I was having cornflakes whenever I could afford them after that. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking that was the best thing for me. Ridiculous. Love it. So Arthur, like uh this is kind of this would be good to hear for me and also for Jamie. So like you obviously left Ireland to kind of get some some different training in um you travel it sounds like you got around the world a little bit, but uh but you know like that's I think that's another thing with right now they have Danielle Eterno in Egypt. Holly Naughton does a lot of training in um in England. Um guys like my brother trying to find, you know, find a good setup places. So Jamie, obviously in the long term, I think you'd love to get back to bringing people to Canada, bring the coaches, bring the players, like have people be able to have a great base out of Canada. But you know, what, what was that like for you, Arthur, making that decision on where to train and how much it did for you? It was, it was probably the only decision I had because when I, when I was 18, I was the top junior and I looked at all the seniors around me and there wasn't that many senior players that were better than me. And the ones that were much better than me, like Derek Ryan, Stevie Richardson, John Rooney, they were living in the UK. And at the time, I suppose John would have been about 26 years of age. And he was always, you know, coming home for the summer. So I got to know him when I was like 15, 16, 17. And he kept on saying, like, if this is what you want, you have to come come to the UK. 
And he, he was definitely right. Well, maybe not necessarily the UK, but I had to leave Ireland. I had to surround myself in an environment where there was lots of players a million miles better than me. And then hopefully some coaches. But it was it was tough because like money was was an issue. Like I didn't have any. Like I was living off, you know, less than five pounds sterling a week, eating not great food. But at the same time, it was absolutely brilliant. There were so many great players around. There was Whitey, Pete Marshall, Alex Goff, uh, Joey Barrington, who was about 50 in the world at the time. There was a ton of players in that bracket as well. So I, I used to just watch what they did all the time. I'd also have the, I was fortunate enough that, you know, they would get on court with me, you know, so I would have a hit with one of those guys at least five days a week, a couple of what I was doing. And then I'd hear like, okay, Marsh used to do this and Parker used to do this or he does that and so-and-so did these runs. So I just started taking what everyone else did and then using creating like a database of like what was working for me and what wasn't. So like it was a really long, extremely long and drawn up process of trying to, a, firstly, I had to develop physically, but what kind of training, what type of training worked for me and my sort of body type and how I could kind of get the max out of my physique as well as improve my squash. And uh, yeah, I think because I didn't have anyone in my corner, you know, I didn't have anyone to sort of say, you know, to create some sort of pathway or to guide me into a direction that would have made that process a lot shorter. But what it did do for me what I see as an extreme positive is by having so much trial and error, it helped me understand an awful lot about training. And then, you know, once I figured that out uh, to a degree, and that's not just about getting stronger and faster and fitter, but more about like trying to peak for certain times of the year or certain events. And like, I remember one tournament on Monday evening, I was flying to Barcelona and Monday was my day doing court sprints. John Rooney's and stretching outside and I'm like going up and down. I was doing like 20 sets of 22s at the time. And afterwards I'm goose. He's like, you're going to Barcelona tonight, right? And I said, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're playing tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you doing now? Like, I, I didn't know that. I mean, it sounds basic. Why would you do a couple of hundred course sprints a day before you play a big match? But as, a, as an 18 year old, I, I didn't know that. I was thinking a little bit bigger picture that, and that, that wasn't good. I should have been thinking about doing well at the tournament. Needless to say, I was goosed when I got there. <laughs> like, so what you're saying is Tuesday was the day to play you. <laughs> Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday and Thursday. Tuesday. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but it was, it was on it. I used to, like, for years, just turned up at, at tournaments. Like, I knew I did a lot of work. And in my head at the time, and again, as a young person, without having anyone it, with a bit of experience to sort of say otherwise, I thought that was it. And almost to a degree, like, that was a... There was two parts to it. One, I felt... That, okay, I'm working hard, therefore I should get results. But it doesn't give you that liberty, right? Because you can work hard at anything, but if you're doing the wrong work, it's counterproductive. I mean, there might be a little bit of benefit to it, but the overall grand scheme of things, it's it's not great for you. It took me a long time to learn that. If if you hadn't got, gotten this uh, from me before, I'm, I'm a big minimum effective dose guy on the training front. Jamie knows that. <laughs> <laughs> Lifelong philosophy. <laughs> Tim Ferriss and I he's doing all right <laughs> yeah and there's definitely I mean when you're a beginner at any activity it doesn't really matter what you do you're going to probably improve but you definitely reach a point of diminishing returns where what you do and the quality of the work that you put in starts to make a big difference to what you get out of that and it's no longer a case of you can just sort of I mean you think about some of the endurance sports like you reach a point where you can't run anymore or cycle anymore 
So you actually have to be smart with your training. And squash is a bit like that. Like pick up a racket for the first time and just play and you'll get better. But eventually you have to actually start targeting certain areas of your game and making your training a bit more specific. Um, just one of the things I'd be interested in your thoughts on, Jamie, um, Scotland's a little bit different to what uh, Arthur was des- describing because for a long time we did actually keep all our best players together and, and Certainly when I was training with the national team, just about everyone that was on the national team was training together in Edinburgh. That started to change and probably one of the reasons why I would say they're probably not going to be as successful in the near future. But do you have any thoughts on whether you would prefer to keep your players together or do you accept that that's just an inevitable part of the Canadian squash culture is that kids are going to be attracted to US colleges and you just have to find a way of working around that? Yeah, I think it's a balancing act. And, uh, you know, you look at some of the stories you hear out of Australia back when, where it was like, you're either in the AIS or you're out. And I don't, I don't know the details, but like that sort of, you know, in or out approach is not going to work for us. And that wouldn't be my philosophy. So as Chris noted, like Holly's in England, uh, Danielle's in Egypt. I think that's great. And I think we, we actually want to encourage it and not make it too comfortable to just stay here, um, you know, and train in your little group. Part of it, uh, you know, most of my tour uh, stories are from Jonathan, but part of it is going out there and just, you know, being really uncomfortable. And that's uh, something we've got to keep in the back of our minds is that it's really comfortable to play and train with the group, you know, in the city, you know, everyone speaks the same language. That's, that's easier than going somewhere and, you know, not even being able to order dinner because you don't know the language. So uh, that's in the back of my mind for sure. And I I think there's a mix. I think you want to have a welcoming environment when you come home, but you got to kick them out of the nest sometimes, I think. Um, And, you know, it's a balancing act, like you said. Is there a case to say that like a national center and and these hubs around the country, I'm just spitballing here, but act as more of like, yes, they're national centers and they're they're places that are always there for, for all your top players but primarily maybe the goal is to develop these players to a point where then you almost like, like a bird, just like let them on you go, son. And then uh, co- come back anytime you need, know that I'm here on the phone. If you ever want to have a, you know, have a chin wag about life or squash uh, or how it's going or trying to plan it, but you, you let them go, you throw them in the deep end in the lines then see how they get on. They come back, you review it, you go back out again, better equipped and, and something like that or, is it, is it more- no, I think you're right. Like that's, that's my experience coaching is any, any top kid I've ever coached has pretty much gone to university. So I'm used to that. Like they come back in the summer, we get on court, but they're, they're doing their own thing, but I'm going to welcome them with open arms into the environment and use them where I can help them. Um, so I, I think that's important. Some of the guys were talking about um, the Philly center. I'm interested to see how that impacts our Canadian players. Cause um, you know, there'll be a lot of, you know, the James Flynn's and the George Crown's, you know, that might be a place they migrate to, which is great, which I think, you know, the U.S. hasn't really had a place like that. Um, so that could be helpful as well. But yeah, that, that's my philosophy, Arthur, for sure, is we're here for you. You know, if you're not here, I'm going to spend some more time with a younger junior and we're just going to keep next man up, or next woman up philosophy. And the big thing would probably be trying to get these get these players by the time they are 17, 18 to have like to Arthur's point, I didn't know anything about anything either. Um, it didn't feel like it anyway. So 
when you're starting your college career and trying to play some PSA tournaments, they go away. They, they know how to, they know how to train. They know how to eat, eat somewhat properly. And then they know, and then they know maybe a little bit more about how to keep their points in a certain area on the PSA tour. Right. I think a lot of, from what I gather, like a lot of people just kind of learn that as they make mistakes, which, which isn't what you want. Right. Um, so the, the regional centers and just like that national center can get people to a higher level at a younger age, but also maybe prepare them a little bit more to take, take a lot on for themselves when they go away. Yeah, agreed. It's a pathway. So it's like, you know, if I'm a, you know, you're a good example. If you're a good player in White Oaks, which is two hours from Toronto, you know, you can go to Toronto a couple of days a week and then you start to see what's there. And then, you know, you, you know, want to go to the next step. So it's the pathway, but it's also, yeah, you're learning that stuff in a more formal environment and you have support. It's really just support, right? Like, you know, somebody can, can tell you the mistake they made so you don't have to go make it yourself, but it's still good to make mistakes. Thankfully. Yeah. I've been listening to the podcast. Arthur's made a few, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd say between the, the four of us here and we've all made our fair share, but I, yeah, I, I own up to making more than my fair share <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> Yeah, all about it for it, Jamie. Huh? <laughs> that's right, man. I love it. It's good. I think that's where the centralized program sort of concept can work really well, though, is it can bring a group of guys and they can all sort of, rather than every single player making the same mistake, like five players making the same mistake each each month or each year, like one of them can make that mistake and then let the others know and the, the coach can sort of feed into that and going back to the sort of golden era, you were saying that Jonathan and Graham and Shahir were all training together and it clearly worked at that point in time. Um, the US squash centre is going to be interesting. First of all, I wonder if uh, the Canadian players will be welcome at the US National Centre. That's what I <laughs> asked be- them this morning. I said, so what's the deal? How much are you going to have to pay? Or, you know, are they going to want you there? But I, I, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty cool environment they've obviously identified that as the way forward in terms of trying to bring their players back because they've never really had a, a central hub for their players to to train together. So they're obviously targeting that. Um, and other countries have made a success of that. I know England tried it at one point with some of their sort of what I would call transitioning players. Uh, I think Deck James at the time, George Parker, Patrick Rooney, those, those guys maybe four or five years ago they were all brought together at Manchester and it maybe lasted, I think it was less than a year and they decided it wasn't the way forward for them. But then as we've seen other countries, like in Scotland, I would say it was, it was absolutely critical to our success um, of bringing players through like Alan Klein and the success of the national team that we had was a big part of that was guys training together and feeling like they were all, it was almost like a college team. Like everyone was invested in each other's success. We were all trying to push each other forward every day. We had coaches that we felt were really invested in trying to help us improve and achieve not just our personal goals, but collective goals. And I've seen it from both ends. And I think it can, if it's done well, it can work in both ways. But if it's done badly, then it doesn't really matter what system you've got in place. It'll, it'll still fail. Well said. And so, Jamie, where, where things are right now it is still fairly healthy, um, especially on the women's side with, with Holly and Danielle kind of 
seeming to keep keep pushing along up those rankings. And I think Sam Cornette, you know, recently retired, but I'm sure she can still uh, be an awesome addition to the to the team if uh, in team events and got a couple of players behind her with Nikki and Nicole Bunyan. But and then the guys obviously starting to starting to kind of age and you know, move on to greener pastures, I think with, um, you know, Andrew Schnell, Mike McHugh starting to do a little more school, school versus squash. And Sean, Sean, the, uh, the ageless wonder is uh, still ch- chipping away. And then, and then Nick Sackfee. So like, where do you, so things are okay now. How do you see this next wave kind of coming in? Um, how are you going to, how are you going to keep, uh, keep us in the, in the running here? Big pressure question. <laughs> well, you'll see tomorrow in my presentation, we've got, uh, we're, ro- we're rolling out a 10 year plan. So I don't want anybody to get too concerned about, you know, what's happening today and tomorrow. Like this has got to be done as Stu says, right. It's got to be done properly. And there's not going to be any shortcuts to, to putting in a real system. Um, so, you know, as far as the next couple of years go, my, my focus is putting the system in place. We're going to take care of the athletes as best we can. Um, but I'm not going to get too worked up about, you know, if we're top eight or whatever it is that that can distract you from <clears throat> what the overall plan is, which is 10 years from now, another Canadian world champion. Um, so, you know, you, you want to balance it and uh, we're going to take care of what we've got. But the goal is long term for sure. Do you have anyone in mind for that world champion spot? I'm just was Chris Chris Sackley world 40 plus <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean it, we, people have been asking like that person might not even be playing squash right now and that's the point is I don't want to think about a person I want to think about a system that you know somebody that's not even playing right now can enter the system at age 10 or age 8 or 12 doesn't matter and move through the system so I think you get short-sighted when <clears throat> you have athletes that you're saying this person's got to do this as opposed to the system and you know right or wrong that's going to be my approach for the next little bit and I mean we got a couple we got a 12 year old girl in BC who's amazing we got a 14 year old boy top eight the British Open so like there's there's talent for sure but uh, I'm trying to take the faces and the names out of it and uh, my daughter's too so maybe her- <laughs> let's go <laughs> she'd need to win it at 12 that's, that seems like a big ask I would say didn't sure Benny do that yeah <laughs> she, yeah, World Juniors, but I think she was what thirteen when she won World Juniors. But yeah. uh, senior world champion at twelve. Well, call it an, a, call it an eleven year plan then, still. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Would the, is the goal of like producing a world champion in ten years? Could that? Does that feel like you're putting yourself under a little pressure? Over the goal would be to have a group of players to challenge for the world championship. So for example, if it came down to one match with that one individual play, let's say Canadians in the world, world final, world semi-final, will they feel the weight that, you know, this goal of a 10 year plan and this is year 10 and I'm in the final. And Jamie's a bust. If we only get a finalist, they'll say that. Text, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously that, that goes without saying is you need to have, you know, a lot of depth and talent, but if you're a kid and you're 12, you want to hear about like, Oh, we have six players in the top 50 or do you want to think about, you know, I'm trying to inspire here. So, you know, it is an ambitious goal, of course, but if your goals aren't ambitious, you're probably Probably in the wrong game. Very far. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair. No, it's just, uh, just, just seeing what your response would be. It's very good. (laughs) 
<laughs> feel inspired myself. I wish I was only 15. <laughs> just testing. I, Jamie, you could have just went with shoot for the moon and you'll land amongst the stars. Would have been. It's a bit fluffy, but. Yeah, yeah. I think it was in like my third grade class on the wall. <laughs> I was well, just you're thinking. Star, you're in the stars now. You're with Arthur and Stu. Exactly. I was thinking of Jonathan, and I'm pretty sure when, when he was playing in the World Championship final, he wasn't settling. Oh, well, I've made the final, so that'll, that'll be enough. Like <laughs> that, that mentality of like, there is no second place winning only. I don't know if you guys saw the bit. Uh, there was a video recently of a tour of Serena Williams's house, and she, she took the, the camera crew into her trophy room, and she's like showing them all, and she's like, oh, wait. What's this one doing here? This is for second. I never keep this. Then she basically just tossed it out. <laughs> yeah. Love that. No participation trophies. It's rule number one. Definitely yeah. sounds like my wife. She smashes second place trophies. <laughs> Not listening, but uh, sportsmanship. I'm, I'm a good sport in the family and got a lot of second place trophies because of it. <laughs> Seconds are okay for us. Uh, don't know about but that. we are trying to be the number one squash podcast so yeah. setting our sights up there and we're chasing a Canadian for that title as well God damn Canadian. who's got the podcast who's got the hot Canadian podcast right. Jerry, Jerry Gibson from over he's uh, uh, where is he Dubai. UAE he's in oh, Dubai you, yeah. yeah I only listen to ATC I'm totally loyal Love it. So man for one man. Look at that. That's the loyalty that'll get you a world champion in 10 years. Let me tell you. There you go. <laughs> Just to go back to something you said earlier, Jamie, you were talking about the, the Canadian Classic event um, and the way it sort of inspired kids at that era. Um, is there any plans for squash? I know it's a bit uncertain with what tournaments are going to look like at the moment, but does Squash Canada have any plans to have a big sort of Canadian PSA event and try and give kids an opportunity to go along and see these top pros play at any point? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a big part of one of my other roles at Squash Canada is business development. I, I have made some inroads doing you know quite a bit of sponsorship in the past. I'm starting to get you know a little bit of an understanding on how you you might put on that sort of event, and we had a great one um, historically. Um, they say that, you know, the 2008 crash, like the market crash is when that event stopped. Um, so it, it was, it's critical, um, in my opinion, and we're working really hard on it. I had a, a call this morning with a mall, the malls in, in North America are getting beat up right now. And so we're trying to approach some weird, unique venues that we can get our court into and just both drive like a high performance event, but also just drive traffic. Uh, and drive community programming and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's it's on my to-do list in the next uh, – well, in the next year, I believe, we'll get something to that effect. Now, the way we're thinking about it is we want to tear up a little bit, and it's not as important right now to bring in a World Series event, but we want an event that sort of helps Holly and, and Danielle and Nick and Mike McHugh and some of the other guys. And, I, and again, we want to build up um, to having that big public event. But to me, like the tournament of champ- – you guys know – what that sort of event can do for sport. And uh, it's very much on the top of my list. I think it was John Nimick that promoted the Canadian Classic as well at the time, right? Yeah, amazing event. <clears throat> Arthur, I don't know if you ever played in that event, maybe a bit before your time. 
No, no, I didn't. Um, I think probably was playing, but I certainly wasn't yeah, getting into it back in those days. That would have been maybe 2004, 2005, probably before then. Yeah, when 2000 to 2008, Chris, you probably went as a junior, but it was on TV in Canada. Like it was, uh, it was really well done. John did an amazing job. So, you know, getting that back is, is really important. Yeah, to your point about like inspiring the juniors, they had at least two, I think over the weekend, both days over the weekend that it ran, they had all the guys come out and, um, and play, play the juniors at, uh, at the Mayfair Lakeshore, I think it was. So I remember, you know, we just played three quarter court with, you know, a handful of handful of the players. And I think that's the first time I uh, I saw and met Peter Nickel, who I work with now. I think I was probably 11 and he came on. And the first thing he said was, I'm a little cold, so take it easy on me. I'm like 11 and I roll a backhand cross court Nick on him. And then he just beat the crap out of me for the rest of the three quarter court session because he thought I was a little shit, um, which I was, but. <laughs> yeah but that was you know like doing that and I think I was a towel you know a towel kid at the event for a couple of years when I was really young and I think I got on court on the glass with James Wilstrup for like a little you know two minute exhibition or something so like that's the kind of stuff that it you know isn't hugely important but to your point getting that exposure to all those all those players when I was little I mean definitely does something for you Shahir's Shahir's done a really good job of keeping that event alive. So I I do have to say, like, we have been lucky. Toronto's, you know, great squash city. It's always going to have events. But Shahir's done a really good job of putting on a Canadian Open. Um, But we haven't been able to get it out of of the club in a while. And I think that's the next step for us. He's, you know, he, with, between him and what John's done, I think it's time we're going to do it. Is that, that's the event that's, it was PSA last time it was held, but for a while it was just an exhibition event with the yeah. Cambridge clubs. Yeah, it's back to a PSA. I think it was a seventy grand. It's and uh, it's in a in a crazy men's club downtown. That's in a locker room, and uh, yeah. it's, just, it's a wild scene down there. <laughs> and what's that's what's the club scene like? Do you feel like it's or do you have any sense of how it's been affected by the sort of lockdown or shutdown? Do you think clubs might struggle to come back, or do you feel like the the scene is pretty healthy. It's, it's going to be impacted quite, quite deeply um, to, to start. So the private, you know, it's fairly similar to the U.S. Like there's there's a lot of private clubs that are obviously okay. They're not for profit. They're not, um, you know, under the sort of financial stress of bringing in memberships every month. But our downtown clubs are all shut down right now. Our commercial clubs are, are shut down. And so it's really concerning. Um and, uh, you know, we got a really good community. We got really good owners of these clubs. We got really good pros. I think we'll be back, but it's, it's not great right now for sure. I think that's probably global as well. Hopefully it won't take too yeah. long to bounce back. All right. Well, uh, Jamie, it's been great to have you on. It's great to listen to your talk and yeah, really excited for Canadian squash and be keeping a keen, a keen eye and yeah, best of luck with them, man. I think it looks like they're in good hands. So happy days. Thanks, boys. Have me back on in 10 years when I have my world champion. Event. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> you said 10. You probably meant five. We'll, we'll talk to you before then. Yeah, we'll have to make it an annual. Sounds great, guys. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Thanks, right. Jamie. Good awesome, luck man. with the pod. I'll be listening. I love it. Cheers, Cheers man. I listen to it when I'm with my newborn. So. Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah. Cheers.
see ya. I miss squash.